As I mentioned, we have a few things stacked against you this morning. You lost an hour of sleep last night, rainy morning, and I'm going to be reading some Old Testament passages for you. So I ask you, stay with me. It's a little bit of work this morning, but it'll be well worth it as we see the beauty of God and the promises come to pass in Jesus Christ from this passage. If you're new with us, we've been in Luke for a few weeks now. Luke chapter 1, we're coming to the last section of Luke chapter 1. And looking at Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, the message from Gabriel to them, the birth announcements of John and Jesus. Last week we looked at the birth, the circumstances, the event, the scene surrounding the birth of John, John the Baptist. <clears throat> we saw his, his birth, we saw his circumcision, we saw the naming of John and all that took place there. And you'll remember that tensions, the excitement has kind of grown a bit to the passage that we're going to hear this morning from Zechariah. When God told Zechariah that he was going to have a son, all the circumstances added up against him that that was an impossibility, and Zechariah doubted God's promise. And so through that, God disciplined him, and he was mute. He was unable to hear and speak for nine months, and now this child has come we see Zechariah as they want to name this, his new son, little Zechariah. He asks for a tablet and he writes on the tablet, no, his name is John. With that, this act of obedience, we see the dis- discipline of God has taken hold in Zechariah's life. Faith has been produced and he writes, his name is John. With that, his tongue is loosed. And here he receives back his faculties And we saw last week that the neighbors and the friends and the relatives around, they realized something significant, something that isn't just natural is taking place here. Not just because Zechariah was deaf and and dumb and now it's come back to him. And not just because uh, Elizabeth was old and aged and unable to have children. They see with this naming ceremony that just like in the times of old when God spoke through the prophets, there's a glimmer of light and a glimmer of hope that God is speaking once again. And we see it when Zechariah says, his name is John, he's already been named. God has shown us grace. And word starts to spread and it talks that they ponder these things in their hearts, something we'll see of Mary in chapter 2. And they leave us with this question, what will this child be? And today we look at the text of Zechariah now. As he overflows with such great joy that will answer this question, what shall this child be? So Zechariah, as he writes here, he is writing for us a, a prophetic word. It is a prophecy, but at the same time, it is somewhat of a song of praise. And some term it prophetic ecstasy or prophetic praise. And it's just a string of praise and joy and excitement. Joy is, is full in Zechariah for different reasons. One, the birth of his son. He's now able to express joy at the birth of his son, plus the realization from the word of Gabriel seems to be seeking, sinking into him now that this son is the promised one from Malachi, that prophet Elijah, like Elijah, who will prepare the way for the Messiah, and the joy of a proud father in that moment, and then the joy of a priest. You think someone who has labored their life faithfully in somewhat of an obscure area, reviewing the word of the Lord for the people carrying out the covenant with the people, uh, rehearsing those promises, but in an age of of darkness, an age of silence, longing for, praying for, 
a word of prophecy, something from the Lord again. And now as he stands and ministers, God has broken into the silence and the joy that is there. You see it overflowing. And finally, I think there's just the joy of a sojourner. An exile from God, walking in this age that is passing away, darkness all around. And now he has heard his father, his king, speak. And there is joy in that. And so he, as he comes to this passage, joy abounds and it will flow forth. This section here is sometimes called the Benedictus. Uh, you have Mary's song, the Magnificent, and this is sometimes called the Benedictus. That simply comes from the, the Latin Vulgate. And when it records uh, this prophecy of Zechariah, it begins with those words, Benedictus Dominus, blessed be the Lord God. And so it takes its name from there. So often you will see that kind of title, that heading, the Benedictus, the blessing offered up here. At the birth of John the Baptist, in light, in view of the coming Jesus, we see the audience for this prophecy in verse 79. says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is the audience. You remember, the Lord has been silent for 400 years. Darkness, a cloud has gathered over the people even really another 400 years before that, that they've been exiled, taken away, and held in captivity in different spots. And now God has been silent for 400 years. You remember the word, uh, the exam- illustration that Adam gave us a few weeks ago. It really helped me with perspective. But talking about 400 years, thinking back to about when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, 1620. That's about 400 years ago. You think of all of the people and lives and events and generation after generation that has come and gone since then. I, maybe you guys are into like Ancestry.com or something, but I would think most of us would have a hard time tracing back 400 years, our own heritage and where we are, come from. And it's been that long, this has been silent. Many have lost hope. God's forsaken His people is the assumption. He is... He is gone. He has forsaken His people. But there is a remnant that is listening. A remnant that is awaiting out of the darkness for light to come. Out of the silence for a voice to come. We'll see a couple examples of it in chapter 2 with Anna and Simeon. As they wait for the consolation of Israel. They wait for forgiveness to come to Jerusalem. And I think Zechariah, we see that here with him. Someone who ministered faithfully. And now with John the Baptist, sees light dawning over the horizon in the midst of darkness. And this is the setting to those who dwell in darkness, to those who are under a heavy cloud. Just as a simple application, I would make the application that if you find yourself dwelling in darkness under a heavy cloud, under a heavy hand of providence, I trust that these promises, these truths that rise out of the pages will find you where you are and encourage you in the midst of darkness, in the midst of heaviness. Zechariah, as a priest, knows the Scripture. He's saturated with the Scripture. 
And you can see that in this prophecy that comes forward. It is just packed full of Scripture. One commentator I read suggested there's probably 33 different allusions or references to the Old Testament just in these few verses. And so Zechariah, all of the the promises, all of the the covenant uh, truths, all of the prophecies that he would have proclaimed and would have been in his mind and his heart now come pouring forth in praise. And finally, another interesting comment before we look at the text itself. Here, as just in Mary's song, the whole paragraph is is using the aorist tense or kind of in the the past tense, giving you the sense that while it's a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope, Zechariah doesn't speak of something that might happen, something that's about to happen. He speaks of something that has happened. Salvation has come. The promise has been kept. This is the reality. And so there's such confidence, you think, just nine months ago as he doubts the word of the Lord, now such confidence that even at the birth of John, he can proclaim salvation and redemption from God through Jesus Christ. Not just as a hope, not just as a wish, but something that is true, something that is here, something that is assured and upon us. One thing that's interesting, I think, of John the Baptist, Zechariah, this prophecy, is you have, you really have kind of the last prophecy of the Old Testament. You have John the Baptist as the last prophet of the Old Testament. And what you have is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant colliding here in this song of praise. As he prophesies of promises made, but you realize from here on out, it's not promises made, it's promises kept. And in Christ, all of the promises made are now kept in Him. And that's why Zechariah's song is so full of of joy and hope and truth in the midst of, of, of darkness and sadness with the people as its promises made meet promises kept, as we rehearse the old covenant and we find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And they collide here in this passage together. I'm going to do just two things this morning. <clears throat> I'm just going to walk through and give a, a brief outline of Zachariah's prophecy, the four major things he's hitting. And then after that, just make three observations. Things that we observe about God from this prophecy that should elicit our hope and our joy and our worship. This is a well-thought-out song of praise. Yes, it's what we call an ecstatic song of praise, prophetic word of praise, and ecstasy, but it's well thought out. It is ordered as we go through it. The first thing that we see, if we were to outline kind of what Zechariah is doing, is praise to God for keeping his promise to David. Praise to God for keeping his promise to David in verses 68 through 71. In fact, as you look at verse 68, it begins there, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. If you go back to Kings and Chronicles where, where it talks about the inauguration of Solomon, and David would come and be part of that inauguration of Solomon's king, and it starts, his inauguration ceremony starts with those exact same words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. 
And I think Zechariah does that quite intentionally here. And when you think of Solomon, that <clears throat> David, as he, he would come and through his reign, kingship, and request of God, if he can build a temple, build a permanent house of worship for God, where God can dwell, where the people can come to worship their God. And you remember that God doesn't allow that of him. And through the prophet Nathan, he communicates that to him, that that's not something that will happen, but here is what will happen And he communicates the covenant to him. And then Solomon is the one who gets to build that temple. And so you see at the inauguration of Solomon, this kind of immediate fulfillment of the promise and the covenant made with David in the original son of David and Solomon. And now here as we come and Zechariah rehearses that promise, he recognizes an ultimate fulfillment of King Jesus that would come. I'm going to read a little section of 2 Samuel for you in chapter 7 that rehearses the Davidic covenant. You just heard the prophecy of Zechariah read for you. And I encourage you, as I read here from the Davidic covenant, hear all the language that Zechariah repeats in Luke chapter 1. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, follow, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever." Here we have a praise to God for keeping his promise to David. Zechariah recognizes that this coming one, this the Messiah, is the king, the ultimate king who will fulfill this prophecy and reign on the throne forever. He is the one who, as we saw there in 2 Samuel He will have no iniquity of his own, but he will still bear the heavy rod of God. He will still bear the stripes, the punishment for sin and iniquity, because he will bear yours and mine. This should inform us that right now, don't disconnect yourself from the story. As we see these covenants collide, as we hopefully will unite the plan of God for you, the, the unfolding story of redemption, you'll find your place very specifically in it, connected to everything that's happening. And it would inform us right now that Jesus Christ is our King, and He will be forever. 
It's not optional. It's not sometimes. And I wonder if there are tangible things we can look at in our lives that show that we live in such a way that Jesus is our King. Does our time, does our calendar, does our decisions, do do our finances in any way reflect the kingship of Christ in our hearts and lives? And Zechariah begins his prophecy with praise to God for keeping his promise to David. Then he continues it with praise to God for keeping his promise to Abraham. Verses 72 to 75. If you go back into Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, you see this covenant made between God and Abraham. You see it kind of reaffirmed in the oath that he makes to Abraham after uh, he takes Isaac up on the mountain and is willing to offer him as that sacrifice. I'm going to read just a portion from Genesis chapter 17, again, to set the background so you can see the richness of the fulfillment that is taking place here in Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 17 Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And you see this promise of a great nation that he will bless through Abraham and make a great nation, a great people for himself. He will give them a sure possession. One where they are safe from the enemies. One that is a sure and a secure possession for them. And most beautifully, his presence will dwell with them eternally in a unique way. They will be his people and he will be their God. And then darkness for 400 years, and Zechariah now sees the light beginning to dawn, and he praises God for faithfulness to those covenant promises. God has honored his covenant to Abraham. He's making a people. He will be their God. They will be his people. It continues then, the third section of Zechariah's prophecy is praise to God for keeping his promise of a final prophet. And that's a praise to God for John the Baptist. You remember in Malachi 4, Adam, I think, introduced the whole uh, context here of Luke 1 by going to Malachi 4, but that final prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, I'll begin reading verse 3 or 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And so you see the praise continuing to grow. God has been faithful to his word to David. God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham. God has been faithful to send a promised prophet before the Messiah comes. And finally, praise to God for the sunlight. That is praise for Christ. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Final gift is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, that He is coming to rescue, not from a distance, but He is coming to dwell with them, feel their sorrows, feel their pains, feel their temptations, and to be their rescuer. Isn't that a beautiful image? In all the darkness, the sun is beginning to rise. Sunlight is dawning. So that gives us kind of a general outline of Zechariah's prophecy. Now I just want to look at three specific things about God that grow out of this prophecy that I think will elicit our hope and our joy and our worship. The first thing I want to see is God's plan. God's plan. And it is God's plan to bring us to Christ. God keeps His promises in His infinite sovereignty. As he rehearses just the covenants we just looked at to Abraham and to David, you think of all that God did to bring his plan to pass. He makes a promise to Abraham of a great nation. Abraham's old. His wife is old. They can't have children. And immediately it's, well, so much for that promise. But no, God miraculously intervenes and gives him a child. Then you think Genesis 22 Abraham has his son Isaac, his only son, laying on an altar ready to sacrifice him. Is this the end? What is, what is going to happen here? And God provides a ram in the thicket. And later on in Israel's history, you think of Joseph being betrayed in the most evil way by his brothers and sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. And now famine hits the land and it's wiping out the people of God But what men meant for evil, God meant for good. And there is safety, there is a haven for the people of God through the work of Joseph there in Egypt. So they go to Egypt and God provides for them in the midst of famine and hardship. And there they grow and they multiply and God blesses them. But now they find themselves in slavery and in bondage, being mistreated. God raises up a leader, Moses, and now he brings plagues and he, he, he moves them out. Now they come to the Red Sea and they, they have Egypt, mighty forces coming down upon them. Parts the sea, they go through and he destroys a nation. You realize these aren't just like stories disconnected. This is God in his sovereign, infinite mercy and wisdom raising up leaders, raising up nations, sending children, raising up whole nations and laying them low in order to be faithful to accomplish His plan. 
and a plan that finds its meaning, that finds its hope, that finds its center in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. Whatever covenant you are looking at, whatever portion of Scripture you find yourself in right now, you should be able to follow a thread and a strand that takes you to Jesus Christ. If your Scripture reading, if your time of worship is just disconnected and only stories that aren't pulling you to this grand theme and story of Christ, you're missing a rich blessing that pulls our hearts and our minds to Christ. Listen, I'm going to read a portion from Ephesians chapter 1 and look how God's plan unfolds in and through and upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And with John the Baptist, we start to see the plan of God coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not what they expected. It's not how they thought it would happen. Many times they came to the precipice where it looked like it wasn't going to happen, that God couldn't be faithful to His promise. And now 400 years of dead silence, and the light begins to dawn, and Zechariah recalls to mind the perfect plan of God and the Messiah. As the old and the new collide, the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's plan, as we see it, we should trust in His plan. And maybe we are able to trust in it in a macro sense of, yeah, he, it's easier us, for us to believe that He raises up a whole nation and tears down a whole nation, but it's hard for us to believe that He's going to work our job out. Or he's going to help us in, in the relationship that needs to be helped. Or that he understands my real desire and just is unable to meet it. We can entrust and trust Jesus with the smallest of detail, the micro, if you will, part of the plan. Because the Son has dawned in Christ plan of God has come together from moving nations to the smallest detail of your life and His infinite mercy and sovereignty. We hit this text a lot, but He's given you the Son. With the Son, He'll work everything that is necessary for your good, for His glory. So God's plan. Secondly, second thing we see lifted out here is God's provision. Chris almost stole my sermon with his prayer there on God's provision. God's plan to bring us to Christ and Christ's provision brings us to God. Christ accomplished, provided all that was necessary. 
in order for God to be just and the justifier, for God to be faithful to his covenant, and yet no, no sin go unpunished. He is the great provision. Genesis 22, we've referenced it a few times, but as we think of Jesus as God, as provider, and the person of Jesus, coming to the end of that story as Abraham goes to offer Isaac on the altar in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. It says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God will provide. And then the covenant is rehearsed and God makes an oath and swears by himself to Abraham and basically renews those covenant promises that were made. The son of a great nation that will grow from it, that God will be their God and they will be his people. God's provision. We see God's provision in a few specific ways. First, we see it in redemption. You look at verse 68. God provides redemption. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, I think there's some sense for Zechariah in which he's looking for kind of political deliverance. He's looking for a a Messiah who's going to come and overthrow the enemy Uh, in a a political, more earthly type of sense. If you look at verse 71, it says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So he's looking at partly at kind of the historical context of being exiles, being taken, being not being able to worship God without fears they wish that they could. But as you read on, you realize Zechariah is aware that there is much more taking place here than just a political, earthly deliverance. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. There is the real redemption, the spiritual redemption, the true redemption that Zechariah in no means is missing. He sees it growing and building to that salvation from God and forgiveness of sins. That's what they need provided, is forgiveness of sins. How is that going to happen? And in Christ, Zechariah begins to praise and exalt for the provision for redemption We see that there is a provision for renewal. Jesus came not just to redeem, but then from there to renew. Look at verse 74. Again, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Why are we saved? Why are we delivered? Why are we set forth? We are redeemed for righteousness, for holiness, to be renewed. You see, Jesus is the answer both to sin's guilt and to sin's pollution. If you're in Calvin Club, this should start ringing a little bit of a bell here. He has set us free from the guilt of sin and the pollution of that sin, from the penalty and the pollution 
he pardons and he cleanses. It's the double cure that you'll hear sung about and talked about to set us free from bondage and its penalty and to set us free from its pollution, stink, that we might be holy and righteous in Christ. And it is in Christ that that is provided. He provides redemption. He provides renewal. He provides illumination. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. As we think of the Christmas story, the coming of Jesus, this is a often used, the idea of light, God giving light and darkness, is, is used prophetically of the coming of Jesus. You think how Isaiah 9 starts, kind of that famous prophecy there of wonderful counselor. Mighty God, it begins, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus has come to give us light, to guide us, to guide our paths, to lead our feet, to protect us from destruction, protect us from harm. That is the provision of Christ, that the light has come to redeem. The light has come to renew. The light has come to illumine, to illuminate the beauty of God and to lead us in a correct path. And finally, it's come and it has provided peace. Again, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace the way of shalom, the way of wholeness, the way of fullness, of peace. Not the absence of struggle and hardship, but peace in the midst of it. So we see lifted out of the text God's plan, God's provision, and then thirdly, God's power. God himself is the one who comes to bring this plan about. He doesn't rescue us from afar, but he enters into humanity to come and to rescue. That's the catechism we just rehearsed. He is the Redeemer, taking on the form of man. Scripture makes it clear that God who comes, he doesn't rescue us in a a passive sense of just like pulling us out of the way of danger, but in a real offensive sense as he is a warrior who fights for us. He goes to battle for us. Look at verse 69, back towards the beginning. I'll read in verse 68 and verse 69. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn there is the idea. It's not a, a musical instrument type horn, but it is a, a horn that is a, a weapon. Listen to Psalm 92, verses 9 and 10. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where it talks about, refers to God or Christ as that, that horn. So we go to the Old Testament to kind of find our bearing of what it's talking about. 
Psalm 92 and verse 9 and 10 gives us a picture. It says, For lo, thy enemies, O Lord, for lo, thy enemies shall perish. perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And it refers to that sort of image, that huge sort of beast image with that horn that comes and grows and protrudes, that leading weapon. It's the first thing that goes on the offensive is this horn. Listen how Micah describes it in Micah chapter 4, verse 13. God says to Jerusalem, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in, many, you shall beat in pieces many people. Just that, that imagery there of destruction and force, of the iron horn, that when it becomes iron, it is unstoppable. And you lift, I love the, the placing of these two things together, the horn of salvation. When we think of it, we simply think of a baby in a manger. Not so much that mighty, unstoppable warrior. God is raising up a horn of salvation for us. The one who will go on the offensive. Listen to what 1 Samuel says in chapter 2 as it speaks of the coming one to come after David. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against, against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, primarily what's happening here is he's not raising up a horn in order to liberate us from a physical oppressor. He is raising up a horn that will overcome and defeat every spiritual power that rises up against us. Ephesians tells us who the enemy is. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against evil powers, principalities, darkness. You can remember all the way back to Revelation against Babylon. That is evil. That is everyone who gives themselves to this world and to the system of this world. And we saw even there that Babylon, even if you give yourself to Babylon, she still wants to destroy you. Everything is headed in that direction. God, we're told Satan, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So is it just this babe in a manger, or can we connect it with this image as well of this horn of salvation, this iron horn that will be unstoppable? Listen to some of these texts. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Fear and guilt, two great spoilers for Christian life. God has defeated them. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. Christ took on a human nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear or death were subject to lifelong bondage. Back in Luke 1, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn of salvation is defeating, has defeated, has destroyed Satan. Evil, sin. 
we're told that Satan is bound, awaiting his final doom. Yes, he still roams about as a lion seeking whom he may devour, but he knows his end is sure. And the victory of Jesus Christ. There's an image I saw, someone wrote an image under it, and I thought a little picture under it, I thought a great way to end our, our service here, but it has this image, and it's got this lion, once fierce, once roaring. Well, you kind of see the image is a mountain, it's real shadowy in the back, and almost black, you just see the silhouette of this wild ox wild beast of some sort. Two massive horns coming out and impaled on the end of that right horn is that lion hanging there dead. Christ has defeated the final enemy. He has come to destroy the works of sin and Satan and death. In a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate the resurrection. This is the victory. He has defeated the final enemy. Death could not hold him. When we think about the gates of hell being unable to prevail against the church. It's not that we cower back and God is just going to protect us somehow from hell coming forward. It's no, the gates of hell can't stop the work of Christ. It's much more offensive. Christ is going forward. He has defeated the enemy. We see that rising out. The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light shine. The sun is beginning to break. The sun is about to dawn. They're seeing the glimmer of light, the glimmer of hope. And God's plan and God's provision and God's power is all finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your work. We praise you for your redemption, your salvation. We thank you for this prophetic praise from Zechariah. Lord, I pray that it will strengthen, encourage our hearts. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. As the worship team 